Today, we're going to talk about the state of reproductive rights since the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision from the eyes of a reproductive endocrinologist and her activism. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Abby Delaney, thanks so much for being on the podcast. You're so welcome. Happy to be here. So let me just introduce you first. You are you are Nebraska. You are Nebraska. Nebraska. So that's where that's where you grew yeah. up. You're you're a board certified reproductive endocrinologist. Nebraska native, Creighton University for college in Omaha, med school and residency, University of Nebraska. You left very briefly to do your reproductive <laughs> reproductive endocrinology fellowship at the Mayo. Mm-hmm. And now you are back in Omaha at your practice, which is Heartland Fertility, right? Appropriately named. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. That is my story. <laughs> I have not swayed far away. You know, I can't say I blame you. I grew up in New York, grew up on Long Island. Never thought I'd end up back here, but I strayed for a little while and, you know, close to home. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Hard, to, hard to get away. Hard to get away. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about the intersection of infertility and, and abortion because it's something that's really important for all physicians. We were talking about before the show, all physicians to be aware of what's going on here because it, it affects our families. It affects our patients, our communities. And it's like it's an obligation as a physician. People look to us. We need to be aware of this, even if you're a an interventional radiologist, even if you are a head and neck oncologist, this is stuff that you should be aware of. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So as Nebraska. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's fine. Just talk a little bit about how abortion and Roe v. Wade are being discussed in your community. So, well, I mean, first of all, there's there's lots of things happening in Nebraska. So, you know, I, I will start by talking about a little nine months ago. In the past legislative session, there was a bill that was a trigger bill that came out and was proposed prior to the draft leak of, of the Dobbs decision. And we found out that it was coming out the night before as physicians and as a group of five reproductive endocrinologists in the state, we came together and realized that this bill would have outlawed infertility. So both IUI and IVF would have been unfortunately illegal and criminally prosecuted based on this particular bill. Wow. Wait, wait. Yeah. Sorry, before we go into that wasn't the intention of the bill, correct? Correct. The intention correct. was to outlaw abortion, just but correct. in the wording of it also made it impossible correct. to be a reproductive endocrinologist. Correct. It defined life at conception. And so because it defined life at conception, and it also defined like termination of that life, even if it was a non-viable life, as criminally liable. So ultimately... I will talk a little bit tonight about kind of the process of IVF, but when we do IVF, we are taking sperm and egg and we are uniting it outside of the body. And we know from studies on IVF as well as just natural fertility studies that really only of the embryos that are created outside the body, only 50% of them at best make it to the point where they get implanted in the uterus. And then 50% of those can potentially implant in the uterus. So ultimately, we're talking about 20% of fertilized eggs that are able to successfully create a live baby, 
a term, term take home baby. And so ultimately, you know, we know that because we're scientists and we study the data and we know that IVF is a, we are seeing what's happening in fertility real time because we're looking under a microscope and we're actually visualizing it. But unfortunately, senators and politicians and, you know, lay people are not really privy to that sort of knowledge. And so um, Elbiner in 33 was a total abortion ban. Similar similar laws have gone into effect in probably the closest one is Oklahoma. And ultimately, there was concern from us as a reproductive endocrinology community that that would have basically ceased to exist any fertility care in the state. And it was because of the way the law was written and because language is so important in these bills that that was the overarching concern. And so as part of that, we reached out to senators and we started a political action committee. We raised over probably almost $200,000 to help kind of get the election rolling and try to elect people that were not trying to take away IVF. And because we are also physicians that are pro-choice physicians, in addition to that abortion, and we were successful in electing at least two senators, which was in the conservative, you know, heartland. It was a feat, but it did happen. So now, fast forward nine months, we were able to maintain a filibuster in our state, but we still have some pro-life Democrats. So now the new bill is LB 626, which is a heartbeat bill. Um, there is provision and language protecting IVF. So we accomplished that, but ultimately the bill is still detrimental towards women's health. So just for the rest of the episode, if we could refer to not pro-life, but anti-choice. Perfect. Because I think language matters. Totally. And, it's, and it's, it's something that we've talked about in previous episodes is you can actually move the needle a little bit on other people's thoughts and decision-making simply by changing your words a little bit because it changes the way they think about things a little bit. So not, not, I'm not, no, it's clearly not criticizing or anything, but I think this should be something that all of us should be. No, I'm sorry. Quick. Just sorry. That's not, they're not pro-life. <laughs> they're, they're anti-choice and just, you know, they're anti-choice. So, yes. anti-choice. All yes. right. So, so yes, uh, me of all people shouldn't be correcting anyone in, in this situation because I need I need a refresher on a lot right. of what you're talking about, right? So I, I want yeah. you to talk to me like I'm the Todd from Scrubs, right? Like <laughs> the stereotypical surgery bro who, you know, just just wants to uh, – the, the, the stereotypical orthopedic surgeon, right? Sure. And l- let's start with definitions. Like what's an embryo? What's a fetus? And go from there. Sure. Okay. So traditionally – Embryo is defined up until about the 11th or 12th weeks of pregnancy. So really that first trimester, but it can be anything from fertilization. So egg and sperm kind of united all the way up until that kind of through that first trimester. The fetal period of pregnancy really is defined post that first trimester. So basically into the second trimester and beyond. We typically define the embryonic period as in that first trimester. And so I think it's pretty easy to sort of lay people can understand that. That first trimester is still determined like embryonic period. 10 to 12 weeks, things sort of get a little fuzzy. And a lot of that data, when you talk about embryonic versus fetal, is based on 
miscarriage data. So we, a lot of times when we're taking a history and physical exam on patients that have had recurrent miscarriage, one of an important really part in that data is trying to figure out, okay, well, was this during that embryonic period where the chances of abnormalities of the embryo being much higher? So early miscarriages generally are related to those sort of abnormal embryos that we see or second trimester, more sort of placental or maternal causes of miscarriage. So that's where sort of that, those definitions kind of come from and why the OBGYN community has generally landed on those is the difference between embryonic and fetal. For me as a, as a reproductive endocrinologist, I am significantly interested in kind of, you know, the fertilization till about eight weeks of pregnancy. And then most of our pregnant patients are sent on to OBGYNs to manage the remainder of their pregnancy. So all of my patients and all of their pregnancies are in that, what we call embryonic period. Um, so that's sort of the, the major difference. I think that's probably the definition between embryo and fetal. And so I think what's probably more important is what I alluded to before, where, you know, I think a lot of people that are anti-choice believe that life begins at fertilization and wouldn't that be great. But I would tell you that like, if life began at fertilization, I wouldn't have a job. We as humans are very inefficient at reproduction. We just, we don't do it well. And to only 20% of those early embryos that we make will end up being sort of a, a live born fetus. Once you get to the point of like about six weeks, even at six weeks, there's still about a 15 to 20% chance of miscarriage. Once you get to about 12 weeks, there's about a less than 10% chance of miscarriage. And once you get to about kind of 15 weeks, there's a less than 1% chance. But the bottom line is we are very inefficient at reproduction. And ultimately, that is why sort of these laws fall short from a scientific perspective that you know, ultimately what, what your religion may say and what you may be taught in church and in your community, it does not actually win out scientifically. Wow. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Are you feeling burned out? We all get into at least a little bit of a rut or a big one. Are you looking for something to spice things up? Do you remember how exciting it was to start med school or residency or that first job? Locum tenants could be a great way to get yourself out of that rut and get as excited as you were back then. Do you have questions about locums? I do. Locumstory.com has the answers from physicians like us. They have locum trends for each specialty, ways to compare different locums agencies. Locumstory.com is a great place to start. So visit locumstory.com today to learn more about locum tenants and see if it's right for you. That's L-O-C-U-M story, all one word, dot com. <laughs> so what about the definition of an abortion, right? Because yeah. I think the way it's defined legally and how it's defined medically aren't necessarily the same, right? Because a miscarriage is a spontaneous abortion, right? And so, so first, let's start with the medical definition of an abortion. So the medical definition of an abortion is, is the end of a pregnancy, no matter how it happens whether it happens spontaneously, whether part of it happens and not the, like 
an incomplete abortion is where some of the pregnancy is dispelled, but not all of it. Some of it still remains. A missed abortion is where the pregnancy stops growing. The heartbeat is no longer, but the pregnancy has stopped developing. So the in effect, the embryo or the fetus has completely passed away inside the uterus and is no longer. A, um, a septic abortion is a pregnancy that is affected by an infection in the uterus. So the medical term for abortion is the end of a pregnancy, no matter how that is completed. The legal term for abortion varies now in, the, in this great United States, varies state by state. And something we were talking about earlier was, you know, how it's defined. There might be something written in a bill that defines it, but then there's the intention of the writers, there's the intention of the voters. And then, you know, if there's a lawsuit, it's how it's interpreted by the judge. Correct. So it's not always it's not like you can go back to your Harrison's or your Stedman's mm -hmm. dictionary and look it up because <laughs> no. this is a lot of just Correct. legally it's up to an interpretation. It's up to interpretation. Correct. So, oh, that's that's challenging. So, OK, but there there are other terms that are bandied about, right, that you mm -hmm. hear about on the news that are terms that we would never use because they're not real medical terms. So can you talk to us about some of the terms that that the that the far right will say tends to yeah. use that are intentionally intentionally misleading and not medical terms? So I think the the one that sort of stands out as you're saying this is this term of partial birth abortion that that's not an ex, that doesn't exist. That's a delivery. When a pregnancy is far enough along that the the baby at this point can be delivered, it is delivered. It is not killed outside the body. It is, that is not a thing. So this partial birth abortion, these late term abortions, that is a delivery. We deliver those babies. Um, we deliver those fetuses. That is, that is the bottom line. So that does not exist, um, but it's sensationalized, right? So I mean, you know, when you have people that are non-medical that really feel a certain way, they're able to sort of sensationalize that. And so I think that's probably the one. So what, sorry, what are they saying it is? They're like saying it's like infanticide, that we're like terminating a pregnancy and killing, a, like killing a baby outside, that we're basically dismembering a baby oh and, and letting it die. And that that's not medically accurate at all. No, no. Well, so, so what's the difference between a fetus <laughs> and a baby? Right. A fetus is still in the womb and a baby is outside the womb. Correct. 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 And I mean, I would venture to say that, I mean, I am not an abortion provider. So, I mean, full disclosure, like I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. Right. But I would venture to say when I have spoken to sort of my family planning colleagues and my friends and colleagues that do perform terminations and abortions, 99 percent of these are done pre-viability. So in the obstetric community, viability of pregnancy generally comes around 22 to 24 weeks. Most hospitals have kind of a certain cutoff that they work with, with their neonatologist, say, basically saying like, can we resuscitate this baby successfully? Like if we deliver this baby, can it live outside of mom or not? And the majority have settled somewhere on this, you know, gray zone between 22 and 24 weeks. As an obstetrician in my former life, prior to my fellowship training, you know, I always remember that prior to, to this sort of nebulous 24, 22 to 24 weeks, there is kind of a 
preponderance to sort of say, we're going to save mom. Like we're going to do whatever it takes to save mom. And like, you know, unfortunately, like if that means ending the pregnancy for mom's life, that's what we're going to do because the fetus cannot live outside of mom up until that point. But generally around like 22 to 24 weeks, there is a sort of frame shift, right? There's like a mind shift in obstetrician's mind. We're saying like, can I get the mom to 24 weeks? Cause then baby has a chance. Or, you know, you know, how much longer can I keep the mom pregnant in order to give, give the fetus time to grow? And so, you know, I think in my mind, and I think in 99% of obstetricians' mind, I believe life begins when you can live outside of your mom's body. Like, and up until that point, unfortunately, it's just not scientifically plausible for me to be able to say that, like, you can successfully live outside of outside of mom. And so we have to focus on taking care of the mother and taking care of her body uh, for her overall health, her overall pregnancy, future pregnancies, her children that are living at home. And I think up until the DOPS decision, that was what the majority of the family planning community was doing, despite, I think, sensationalized reports of partial birth abortions and, and things like that. Again, it's, I am not an abortion provider, but that I think is everyone's general consensus was that we are doing our best to maintain the life of the mother. We're not going to make a mother carry a pregnancy that is not going to live outside of her body because that's putting her health at risk and putting her uterus at risk from an infertility perspective. God, I would hate for someone to carry a pregnancy to term that's never going to live outside the body and then lose her uterus and never be able to carry another pregnancy again and have uterine factor infertility secondary to that. You know, it's unfair and unjust. Well, uh, <laughs> then I definitely need to be having an abortion provider on the show. That is something that uh, watch out in an upcoming episode because it's definitely something that we need to need to explore more. So let, let's get back to because we've gotten a little far from infertility. Right. And that's what your yeah. that's what your specialty is. That's that's. Yeah. So, you know, you, you spoke about some of it before, but is there anything else, any any other legal changes since the Dobbs decision that affects a reproductive endocrinologist, the practice of reproductive endocrinology? I mean, I think the biggest thing is, so just to, I'm going to talk about three things, but the biggest thing is, so if we're creating life outside of the body, and if, if only 50% of the embryos that we create ever have a chance at creating a live burn baby, those embryos aren't technically discarded. They pass away in the dish. But in legal terms, if you're defining a life at conception, even if they pass away in the dish, we could be held legally liable based on legal definitions of when life begins, not medical definitions, legal definitions. So that's always been the concern. The second thing that we sort of are probably going to be faced with in states moving forward, we offer a new technology called pre-implantation genetic testing, where you can genetically test embryos to evaluate their karyotype. So number, caliber of chromosomes. And those embryos that are not compatible with life trisomy 16, where it's the most common cause of miscarriages, multiple chromosome abnormalities. Even though the embryo looks perfect under the microscope, the chances of kind of either a miscarriage or that pregnancy not taking are incredibly high, 60 to 80%. So those embryos are allowed to naturally pass away. And unfortunately, the question after Dobbs is, are we going to be able to do that long-term? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Is there another term we should be using other than pass away, right? Because if we're trying to navigate these conversations, 
Well, I think that like it's important though in the like the infertility community to sort of acknowledge that these are pregnancies are really hard fought and like even every embryo counts to them. So I use that yeah. term because I think that you know infertility is incredibly emotional, incredibly difficult journey. And so I, you sort of have to acknowledge that like to my patients and many in the infertility community, they look at those embryos as potential life. And yeah. part of my job as a reproductive endocrinologist is to number one, acknowledge that. Yes. But number two, sort of bring that science home, right. And say like, it is a potential life, but based on the data that we have and based on sort of, despite what you feel, despite your pull and tug towards those embryos, this was never going to be a take-home baby for you. And yeah. so that's why I say pass away in the dish, because I want to sort of recognize, I mean, part of this whole kind of conflict for me has been recognizing that many of my patients so desperately want this pregnancy. And I think most of us in the infertility community acknowledge that, but also have to sort of fight that knowledge that like, as much as we want something doesn't unfortunately mean it to be true. And we have to acknowledge the science while also simultaneously acknowledging that emotional attachment, which is totally reasonable given what they've, what they've been through. And it so, also helps you understand um, the other side a little bit, right? The, 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 the people that are exactly. fighting for these exactly. two, all the viable babies, despite the reality that they were just hoping. And I mean, like I said, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. But it just, that is not how re human reproduction works. That's not how my job works. Um, so that is what I use that term. I think that, I think that, you know, again, I'm giving credence to combine my community and recognizing that like these were really hard to get. And I understand how desperately you wanted them to work, but that's not the case. So, so yeah. yes, like we would have to like, let them naturally pass, let them like, you know, we're not willy nilly throwing embryos away. Like that is, that is not what our community is doing, but we are recognizing the scientific limitations of human reproduction. So then I think the biggest question, then like the third question is if we cannot discard these embryos, if we're not, if we do not allow these embryos to, to pass away naturally, do we have to use them all? So if you have five or six embryos that you weren't able to genetically test, because again, we can't, maybe that's going to become unethical in the future, because can you genetically test a life, even though it's a potential life? Does that mean I have to transfer all of them? Does that mean that you have to have six or eight children, even though your family plan was two or three? Does that mean that I have to transfer more than one embryo at a time rather than just one? And that gives your pregnancy at increased risk for multiple gestation, giving you, you know, both maternal mor morbidity uh, because of preterm labor, hypertension, you know, gestational diabetes, um, all of those things and fetal like morbidity because I'm basically putting your pregnancy at risk rather than doing the single embryo transfer that we have sort of settled on in the infertility community. So I think those are the things that sort of every REI is wrestling with as these laws come out. Like, how is this going to change our practice? I know that, for example, in, I believe, Louisiana, they cannot discard of embryos. So they've had to, they've had to sort of like develop workarounds for that. Um, so, I mean, I think all of our community is, is facing backlash. And, and as you alluded to earlier, I'm not necessarily sure that it was ever the intent of the lawmakers to make this the case. But 
because they don't understand the science and because they don't understand sort of the the multiple kind of hits from like a medical community that the OBGYNs are feeling. They write these laws and there's unintended consequences. So what do you know what the workaround is in Louisiana? Because it makes me think like they just ship them off to a neighboring state where they're able to do what's appropriate. And there's like, what is there like an extradition law back to Louisiana? Yeah. So that is my under that is my understanding. I don't think so. I'm sure we probably just gave them a very good idea, right? The other side of your good idea. But no, my oh, understanding God. is that they're um, not listening to me. My, <laughs> my understanding is that like the, in order to discard embryos, they have to sh- they have to just send them elsewhere. Um and oh. then they're able to discard offsite. But while they're there, while they're still are they tax deductions? No. No. Of course not. What? But, so but why not? Right. If they're right? saying it's a life, just like that woman in Texas who was in the HOV lane they, while yes. pregnant, she's like, no, personhood like, law, <laughs> this person's in the car with me. I'm not, right. you know, like, no. same, same, exactly you know. Right. Yeah. No, they're not. No. So I think the only place that has subsequently tried to do that, I'm not sure whether they were able to accomplish it, or at least I think it's tied up a committee or something with Georgia. They tried to pass like actual taxed personhood. Like you could get tax deductions based on miscarriages. Okay. All right. So, so now let's talk about, you were talking about LB 933. That's what got you into the fight, right? Um, but now there's LB 626. What is that about? So LB 626 is the, it's the Nebraska heartbeat bill. It essentially defines life at conception, but makes exceptions for rape incest and IVF and basically says that you can have an abortion up until the point of visible rhythmic fetal heartbeat. And that is not defined on like a rate. It's not defined in the bill as a gestational age. It's just defined as visualization of the heartbeat. So as a reproductive endocrinologist, part of my hats is that we are specialists in first trimester obstetric ultrasound. And so generally speaking, you can see a flicker around five weeks, five days. So in lay terms, we have basically- A flicker. Correct. So electrical activity or a heartbeat? Electrical heartbeat. No. And at that point, at five weeks, five days, it's basically a tube. So it's like, it's a long tube of cells. It is, it is not a structurally formed heart. It doesn't actually have a four chamber heart till about eight or nine weeks. So it's not a fully functional heart. I mean, it is, it is a conduit of blood and that is essentially it, but you can see my, and you know, as I sort of, you know, in my Instagram, you can, you can make this happen in vitro. I mean, you can take myocardial cells, plate them in vitro and make them rhythmic beat. And as I tell my patients, again, they see that heartbeat and it is such a wonderful moment because they have worked so hard to get there. It's just that I sort of always have to tamper that with like, okay, but like still there's like a chance that this could miscarry. We have to sort of like step back. I'm super excited for you, but like, it's just not, it's not perfect. They Um, need something. The, the, the right needs something that that so will a, tug at yes. heartstrings, to not use the heart redundantly yeah. here, but no, it's to, sensationalized. To, yeah, that utilizes emotion, right? And so they're correct. they're, you know, oh, it's a heart, therefore it's human. That's where your soul, you know, it's correct. It it's not 
scientific. It's just, it's emotional. Mm-mm. Correct. And, th- and that's, that's how they've been able to, you know, I mean, I think in like the nineties, it was coined like the term, like abortion stops a beating heart. And that's where this, this, all of these heartbeat bills have come from is that sort of yeah. sensationalized po- political, um, political sensationalized. Um, but it's not scientific. It's not data. It's, it's just what they've been able to sort of determine. So, you know, as, as we have been saying in Nebraska, the bill is is frustrating from a reproductive endocrinology standpoint because it defines pregnancy as in the uterus. But we, as the five reproductive endocrinologists in the state... Wait, sorry, you guys are the only five reproductive endocrinologists in the state? Yeah. Holy cow. And we take care of all the... I know, see, Nebraska's... We're, we're a small... <laughs> yes, state. But my point is that, like, there are ectopic pregnancies that happen in the uterus. So, I mean... C-section scar topics, corneal topics, and most of those generally are not discovered until much later on in pregnancy. So most of the time they have a heartbeat. So based on this bill, it calls into question whether or not I can end that pregnancy to save the mother's life. Because the biggest problem is that the bill says, it says basically that you can end a pregnancy if it is, if the mother's life is in danger or if a bodily organ is in danger. But as the obstetricians throughout the world and the United States have been saying and screaming like, okay, well, like, what does that mean? Does that mean they have to be hemorrhaging? Does that mean that their hemoglobin has to be dropping and then I can intervene? Or does it mean that I can like, what is, define like end of life, like define life-threatening? And none of the politicians can give us that answer. They just continually say to us that you are safe. Oh, you'll be okay. Correct. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You're okay. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're not the one on the chopping block. Right. Yeah, I am. And so LB-626, it's not criminal charges, but it goes to the director of public health, which is a political employees, and whether and basically the it, they revoke your license, which as we as physicians know, you get revoked license in one state, you're going to find it very difficult to be able to practice anywhere else in the United States. This isn't, you know, just because, you know, this is, this is a really big deal. And so ultimately it's very frustrating because we're, we're sitting here saying like, I know these are, this, your intention was to stop what they call elective terminations or elective abortions, which but like, that's not exactly what you're doing. Like what you're doing is putting people at risk. The other very unfortunate thing is that the exceptions for rape and incest actually, because of Nebraska case law, are never actually going to win out. Um, so <laughs> in Nebraska, in order to, in order to get this, get an abortion because of rape, you would have to First of all, you'd have to basically file a police report, which, as we know, most women who are raped or have incest never file a police report. They never tell anybody. Number two, you'd have to tell your doctor who would have to put it in the medical record as kind of showing that, like, they're doing this abortion for rape. And then that police report would have to go through and you would have to win the case saying that you were, in fact, raped, which in Nebraska, only 2% of those cases actually win. And then even worse. Oh, and by the time that baby would have been born. It's not like the wheels of justice move quickly. Yeah, totally. And even worse, in the state of Nebraska, based on case law, you have to co-parent with that rapist. So these women who are fearful of their life, fearful of potentially their future children's life, or maybe their their live children that they're trying to take care of, 
are forced with the decision of letting the rapist know that they're calling them out, you know, because it has to become public instead of just having an abortion to to yeah. save their lives. And then the other thing that it really that it doesn't do, which it just infuriates me, it, it gives no there is no exceptions for m- mental health. So if a woman says they are suicidal, you can't have an, an abortion. That is not enough in the Nebraska legislature's eyes. That's not consist. That's not considered imminent danger. Correct. Okay. So so <laughs> yeah. It's so talk good. about what you've learned in your activism. Yeah. Right. So if we're if we're listening and we're like, man, I need to get involved Ugh. in my state. Right. What? Because that you know, the, and the fights are local. The fights are local. Totally so local. T- talk to us about your activism and what you've learned. Okay. Well, so I guess the first thing I've learned is that you have to acknowledge that politics exist because you know I was born in Nebraska, as you alluded to early. I grew up in a conservative family. I mean, when I became a registered Democrat, it was like really bad for my relationship with my family. It was, it was bad. And now they've sort of come around and understand like why I feel so strongly about this because it's what I do every day. But my point is that you sort of, you have to acknowledge, even despite, like, I think in medicine, we are taught, don't become political. You don't want to alienate patients. You, you know, like just stay the straight and narrow. Don't discuss politics with your patients. And I think that's, what's gotten us to this point. I think that we are here and we have allowed the government in our exam room because we didn't, we didn't talk about it. We, in medical school, I remember specific lectures and basically saying like, you can have your own personal politics, but don't discuss it with patients. And while I understand and respect that, like everyone is allowed to feel differently about things, I think that we have to acknowledge that this is what has gotten us into the situation. So I think that is my my number one recommendation is that like, you just have to, like, that's the elephant in the room. The politics do exist. You have to acknowledge that you have to, you have to figure out who you are and figure out what you believe. And then the second thing I would, I would say is that you need to find at least six or seven people, like in the state of Nebraska, we didn't need that many, but I would say in bigger states, you probably need to mobilize physicians around you. And we've done that a number of ways. We did form a political action committee called Campaign for a Healthy Nebraska. Prior to that, we formed a group of just the REI physicians called Save IVF Nebraska. We were able to f- basically form a Facebook group so that all of our patients could share their infertility stories and why the government should not be coming in to outlaw that. So I think it's important if you are an OBGYN listening to mobilize your patients. I think that first, you have to recognize that politics exist. Second, you have to mobilize your patients. And third, you have to mobilize physicians. So we have now subsequently developed um, a group called um, Nebraska Physicians for Advocacy, so NAPA, and we are now mobilizing physicians to sort of go come to the Capitol, talk about these bills, because, I mean, I've only scratched the surface of, like, the abortion bills, but there are multiple other bills that actually would influence the practice of medicine and at our state level right now. And so, you know, people are going tomorrow to talk about some other bills, and so I think If you can do three things, number one, recognize that politics exist, know who you are and stand up for what you believe. Don't let 
your mentors who have been doing this for so long, but just kind of always live by the mantra of like, you know, I keep medicine and politics separate because those have intersected where we've, that's long gone. Let find a buddy. So develop a course, like set of kind of physicians that follow you um, and then mobilize. The fourth thing that we have done is sort of create a, like a national coalition. Um, so when the, infertility kind of concerns came up. There was a group of, there's about 10 to 15 reproductive endocrinologists throughout the United States that have formed a group called Doctors for Fertility. And we are now lobbying for, it's a 5031C and a C4 organization. So we're both a nonprofit and a political action committee um, to lobby for our patients and lobby to kind of create and maintain reproductive health care, all comprehensive reproductive health care throughout the United States. So if you find yourself in a situation, whether it's, you know, neonatal hospice, and now they're making you resuscitate 20 weekers that are never going to live, or if, you know, I'm not sure ENT, I'm not really sure how the government, but I, I'm sure they could find a way to come into your practice and, and figure out a way. But I mean, the point is, is to sort of like get your core group of people start in your state and then expand sort of nationwide. Part of what we're doing with Doctors for Fertility is we're going to start an advocacy campaign where we educate other people how to get involved at their state level. The other, And then the final thing I will say is that it's probably important to sort of reach out to some of your local legislators. I mean, I had a crash course in Nebraska has the only unicameral left in the United States. So there are 40, like, that's it. Um, there's a unicameral. It is quote unquote nonpartisan, even though it is totally partisan. But the bottom line is there is one house and, you know, it's important to sort of understand your laws, understand how things are passed. And make sure that the politicians that are aligned with you are able to educate you because that was a huge dilemma for me. <laughs> I was like, wait, what do you mean? I can't talk to them? Like, why can't I just talk to them? Why can't we sit in a room and like talk about this and say how like this doesn't work? Like, that's not how it works. So I think it's important that you sort of align yourself with sort of some people so that they can give you some education. Amazing. Amazing. So I found you on Instagram. <laughs> I found you. I'm... I'm I love what you're doing out there. And, the, you know, Thanks. that's how I discovered that this, you know, this is what you've been doing and how we started this conversation. So if if people want to find you online, if they heard you and they are having some fertility trouble and they're in Nebraska and they would. So yeah. where do we find you online? It's Dr. Abby Delaney, MD. That's my Instagram. Uh, it's the same Twitter it's, and I'm also on Facebook, but that's like where I, it's really only like friends and family on Twitter. I really, again, like this has been all very new to me. I was a like, sort of sheltered child that like, was like, do I really want to have a public Instagram? And then this all sort of came out that, and I feel strongly that I needed to educate my patients and other people. So it's Dr. Abby Delaney MD on Instagram or on Twitter. And then your, so. your practice's website? It's heartlandfertility.com. So Heartland Center for Reproductive Medicine. There's four of us. I We have a great, great group. So um, we're all young. We're all in this together. And we all trained sort of around the same time. So it's been really fun to have them as a team. Fantastic. Well, thank you for fighting the good fight. Yeah. Good luck Thanks with the fight. And hopefully absolutely. this conversation mobilizes some more <laughs> physicians to get out there with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. And follow Doctors for Fertility. I think that's the one that I think... Cause that'll be sort of nationwide so that you guys can sort of, you know, all sort of 
Um, there's going to be different kind of education events that are going to be put on. We have a really great organization that's working to sort of improve physician advocacy. Yeah. Sometimes no need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> Just find someone yeah. that's near you that's doing this already. And uh, yeah, and totally. There's lots of people out there. And I mean, I always tell everybody that one out of four female physicians it has infertility. And so, you know, part of it is we spend a lot of time delaying pregnancy and we're old by the time that we get pregnant. And I can say that as I turn 40 tomorrow, my point is, is that this should be something that's near and dear to every physician's heart. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for all your work and yeah, happy thanks. birthday. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> all right. It's going to be a good day. I feel wiser. So. <laughs> thanks for listening to the physician's guide to doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking. If you're interested or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physician's guide to I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers.